Thank you very much, Phoebe and Bailey, for reading God's Word to us. We're going to be looking at this passage from Micah, chapter 3, it's page 661 in the Vita Gray Church Bible. And you're on your own if you're looking at a different Bible, fifth book in the Old Testament from the end. Hope you can find it. Let's all look at this passage together, Micah chapter 3. We've just heard Jesus speaking some tough words for telling the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. It's a vivid reminder that a lot of what Jesus says in the Gospels isn't very nice. We forget that Jesus, tender shepherd, gentle and lowly, etc., etc., was a truth-teller, a committed truth-teller, a courageous truth-teller. We live in a time when truth-telling is uncommon and unpopular, especially within the church. The Jesus of history, whose prophetic witness got him crucified, well, he's disturbing. Who wants to come to church after all of the problems that we have to deal with week in and week out? Who wants to come to church and be further disturbed? Modern life is already too difficult. Give us sweet baby Jesus instead, or give us storybook Jesus. Give us the smiling European surfer Jesus. Do not give us the Jesus of the Gospels. We've had enough. want nice Jesus. But the risen Lord Jesus, he's not always nice. <clears throat> he always loves though. He always loves He loves you. He loves you so much that he tells you the truth and he invites you to be a truth teller also. He'll give you the courage to be a truth teller because telling the truth is always always the loving thing to do. Uh, we're continuing a series today in the book of Micah, this series we've been calling Love Gives, and today I hope to show you that one of the things love gives us is truth-tellers, prophets, people who speak the truth in love, people like Micah, and hopefully people like us too, as we look at this together. Let's pray first and ask for God's help. We we do turn to you, Lord, to tell us the truth, to make us wise, and then to empower us to love with our words in ways that you have designed, the ways that you call us to serve one another in the truth and in love. We know that we can't do this apart from your strength, and so we ask for your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord. It's terrifying to have to do this. In a civilization that hates to hear the truth, we are afraid. We need your spirit at work in us now to teach us and to help us do as Jesus has commanded. And this we ask in his name. Amen. So, Micah chapter 3, if you could look at it, I'd so appreciate it. It will make a lot more sense if you turn to page 661 in the Great Bibles. Today's passage, Micah loved God, and he loved his neighbor so much that he didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. Instead, he spoke the truth in love. In today's passage, he speaks to four different groups. He speaks, first of all, to the rulers, 
then to the prophets, then to the nations, and finally to believers. As we move through the passage, I want to show you, first of all, as he speaks to the rulers, he says, your subjects are for leading, not eating. For leading, not eating. He says to the prophets, use it or lose it. To the nations, he says, Bibles, not bombs. And to us, he says, feast on the word and speak the truth in love. So look at the first four verses in chapter 3. Micah says to rulers, your subjects are for leading, not eating. Verse 1, I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? This is introducing a new message from the prophet Micah after his first message in the first two chapters. Now he comes to start a new one. And he's speaking sometime around 725 B.C. The, the ancient nation of Israel is divided after a civil war. There are two kings in two cities representing two separate countries. In the north is Samaria. That king is named Hosea. Um, and in the south, in Jerusalem, that king is named Hezekiah. Uh, sometimes Jerusalem is called Judah, and that's the way it is here in verse 1. Micah wasn't from the city, by the way. He was from down south on the way to the beach. I like to imagine him as a Florida man. I don't know why, but I just think of him as kind of a redneck speaking truth to power, and, uh, and somehow that gives me joy. Um, he's not someone that Washingtonians or Jerusalemites, however you say that, Jerusalemites, uh, would, would appreciate or be inclined to take seriously. So it's remarkable that his words were recorded and passed down to us, and as we'll see, they had some effect. These first four verses, he's speaking to the rulers of Judah and of Samaria, or Israel. Both of them, Hezekiah and Hosea, were guilty of the abuse of power really severely. So in the fear of the Lord, Micah calls them out. He warns them of the judgment to come. He says, is it not for you also to know justice? How are these kings abusing their people? Instead of leading their subjects, they were eating them, in a manner of speaking. Look at verses 2 and 3. You'll see Micah pictures these kings doing what a priest would do in the preparation of a burnt offering. First, skinning the animal, then putting the fleshy bones in the cauldron, and, and cooking the bones in a stew, and then chopping it up, and then eating them. It's a graphic description of what short-sighted leaders do whenever they make themselves richer at the expense of their subjects. Selfish, it's destructive, it's like cannibalism if you think about it. It still happens today, even here in Washington. Our leaders do this as well. Michael, we're here today. I think he would be saying to our leaders, is it not for you also someday to know justice? Beware. But cannibalism isn't even the worst of it. If you read the way that Micah is framing this, he's putting it in religious language. He's showing that these rulers fancied themselves as gods. The way Micah describes what's happening is just the way that the ancient gods were pictured to have received burnt offerings and eaten them. 
It's disgusting, isn't it? But sometimes, this is the best way to speak the truth to power. Even over-the-top imagery can sometimes be the loving thing to do, if that's what it takes to get people's attention before it's too late. Some 300 years ago, another author, an Anglican priest, by the way, Jonathan Swift, read Micah's words, and then he took the same approach with his modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people from being a burden to their parents or country and for making them beneficial to the public, or a modest proposal for short. My high school English teacher, I think 11th grade, was super fascinated with Jonathan Swift, and he read to us throughout the year of, of him and uh, made a great impression on me. Um, everyone back in those days, 300 years ago, knew the problem about the poor suffering masses in Ireland. For decades, English and Irish leaders had waxed eloquent about how best to help them. But the truth was that those in power benefited from the way things were. They benefited from the status quo. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. So Dr. Swift took this page from Micah's playbook. He read Micah chapter 3, and then he went to work writing his modest proposal, suggesting that poor people could make a decent living by raising up their children like cattle and then selling them to the rich to be eaten. It took Britain by storm. It was graphic, it was shocking, and it got people's attention. It's still regarded as one of the greatest satires in the English language, and I think it paved the way for all of the kind of satirical uh, speaking truth to power that we see today. So if, you, if you're reading The Onion today, remember it started not with Jonathan Swift, but with Micah, chapter 3. That's where it all began. Anyways, Micah's message to the kings of Jerusalem and Samaria is this. Your subjects are for leading, not eating. Otherwise, verse 4, these rulers, they, will cry to the Lord, but the Lord won't answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they've made their deeds evil. See, every leader serves at God's good pleasure. Joe Biden, Vladimir Putin, Elon Musk, all the way down to you and me in our respective roles. We're all stewards under the Lord. We've all been given a stewardship. They're all people that are depending upon us in one way or another, whether we know it or not. We serve at the good pleasure of Jesus, the High King. And if instead of caring for those who depend upon us, we ignore their cries and we abuse them, then what right have we to expect that God will treat us any differently? This is the point Mike is making. God will have the last word. We can't outsmart him. Don't hide your face from the poor, or God may hide his face from you. That's the point that Mike is making here with regards to the rulers. All of us need to hear it, not just those in political power. So these first four verses, Micah says, Listen up, rulers, everyone with a stewardship, your subjects are for leading, not for eating. Next four verses, Micah speaks to a new group, to the prophets, and he says to them, use it or lose it. 
Prophets in those days, you have to think of them like attorneys. You have to think of them as envoys that would be sent from one king to another to enforce the rules. Covenant treaties, agreements between nations, the prophets were to go on behalf of the king to make sure that the other country knew this is your bargain with us. You pay your taxes or you get overrun. And the prophets did the same thing on behalf of the Lord. Except that they didn't. Many of them refused to speak hard words from God to those in power. They didn't want to ruffle feathers with the truth. So instead, verse 5, they led God's people astray. Just like the rulers, the prophets preferred to worship the gods of their stomachs rather than the Lord. As long as the rulers kept them well fed, the prophets would promise peace. Even as the Assyrian king, the, the emperor, was on his way west to overrun Israel, they still kept promising peace as long as they were well fed. You know, human civilization has come such a long way over the past 3,000 years, and yet this problem is just as serious now as it was back then. Truth-telling may even be less popular now than it was back then. Many of today's most popular religious leaders are people who feel good about themselves and help you feel good about yourself. And that's all that they do. Never a troubling word. Not that joy and laughter and feasting aren't a part of the Christian life. Of course they are, but until Jesus returns, until Jesus makes all things new, we have to make room for the hard things. We have to talk about suffering and evil and sin and confess it, and we have to lament as well. If these things aren't part of the message, then your religious leader is not speaking the truth in love. I'm not just talking about other churches here. I'm talking about churches like ours as well. The pressure to keep everyone happy is in the water, the cultural water that we swim in. It's all around us. It's affecting all of us all the time. It affects all institutions, including churches like ours. More and more, our default expectations are primarily therapeutic. We can't help this. This is just the culture that we're swimming in. We crave wellness, emotional health, mindfulness, serenity. We crave these things. We feel entitled to these things. And if the pastor can't deliver on these non-negotiables, well, then it's time to look for another church. Meanwhile, the more fundamental Christian priorities lose their urgency. They fall off of our radar. Things like self-sacrifice. Things like integrity, like thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the result is an increasingly anemic, self-help version of Christianity that won't make much difference in the world. I'm reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer as I, as I read this passage. I'm reminded of his cost of discipleship that he published right after the Gestapo shut down his seminary. Virtually all of the other German pastors in those days had abandoned truth-telling for the fear of the Nazis. But Bonhoeffer was like the prophet Micah. He spoke the truth in love. And in, in one of the most famous passages from his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he showed that the way to enjoy a 
a rich and full life was not through self-help, but through the cross of Christ. Let me read this to you and, and listen to what he has to say. Think about how different this is from the messages that we hear so often from religious leaders today. Bonhoeffer says the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every person must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins. The cross is not a terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like, those, like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. It may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. That's not going to draw a crowd, is it? But it's the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth we need to hear. And prophets and preachers, Mike says, aren't exempt from the cost of discipleship. God has no time for messengers who soften his words before they deliver them. So Micah tells the prophets and all who speak for God to either use it or lose it. Look at verses 6 and 7. If you fail to transmit God's word faithfully, God's going to pull the plug. No more messages. Verse 6, therefore, prophets, if you fail to transmit God's word faithfully, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Use it or lose it. If you make a habit of ignoring God's voice, or softening his message, then when you most need to hear from the Lord, there will be radio silence, and you'll be left covering a silent, gaping mouth. Not the prophet Micah, though. Why is he so different? He knows that it's always better to do what the Lord says, even if rulers and clergy hate him for it and cost him his supper. Look at verse 8. He says, As for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So declaring to both the south and the north the hard things. Micah is that voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. He brings bad news that makes way for good news. Until we gain an awareness of our sin, we can't really imagine our need for a savior. Imagine a physician trying to convince a patient you need this therapy without first telling the patient, here's Here's what's wrong. Actually, you're sick. 
That's why I'm trying to convince you to take this medicine. It's absurd, isn't it? For the same reason, God's messengers must speak the truth in love, even and especially what it means telling people the bad news about their sin. Hiding the truth from them isn't kind, it isn't therapeutic. In fact, it's the worst thing someone could do, because again, without the bad news, the gospel won't be welcomed as good news. When we become aware of our sin, then the gospel is the appropriate treatment for the human condition. When we become aware of our sin, then we're ready to receive all that the Lord has to offer. So, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, Micah is wildly different from all of his contemporaries. And he's emboldened, and he retraces his steps in verses 9 through 12. He goes over the same material uh, reprising his condemnation of kings and um, all, all of those in power. And then verse 11, he adds the clergy in. Look at this. Uh, Heads give judgment for a bribe. Priests teach for a price. Prophets practice divination for money. But they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Listen, beware all those who do as they please, take the Lord's favor for granted, and then expect his help in a time of need. He is not your lucky rabbit's foot. He is not a talisman to keep in your back pocket. On the day that you need him, if you have not been faithful to him, you may be very surprised. He is the Pantocrator. He is the king of all worlds. He is the Lord of all nations. He is not to be trifled with. No king or president or priest or prophet can control him. Therefore, verse 12, Micah says, Because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall be a heap of ruins, and the temple on top a wooded height. Scary. And evidently, it's this verse that actually changed Hezekiah's mind. It turns out that that Florida boy, they were listening to him. How about that? <laughs> the king of Jerusalem said, okay, I repent. Um, in Jeremiah 26, we find this verse, verse 12, quoted as having changed Hezekiah's mind. After the Assyrians sacked the northern kingdom, they ended up going home and not coming down to Jerusalem and uh, sacking Jerusalem as well. Many lives were spared because Micah spoke the truth in love. He had the courage to speak truth to power, and the king listened. King Hezekiah repented of his sin before the Lord. Things changed. Wonderful. So in chapter 3, what we see, Micah's messages to two different groups, to the rulers. Please don't eat your subjects. Your subjects are for leading, not for eating. To the religious leaders, he says, use it or lose it with regard to the word of God. Faithfully proclaim it or you won't have it in the day of need. And now, <clears throat> a new audience, chapter 4, verse 1, these next four verses, He's speaking to the nations, and in effect, he's saying, Bibles, not bombs. Look at verses 1 and 2. It shall come to pass, 
in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall say, shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Like many of the prophets, Micah is looking forward to this time, the latter days. And that's that new era when God's kingdom will no longer be concentrated with one geography, with one ethnic group, uh, but it will begin to encompass all peoples and all places. And what he envisions has already started. It began at Pentecost after Jesus rose from the dead. He poured out his spirit upon his followers at Pentecost. And over time, the word of the Lord went forth from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and on and on outward to, the, to, to Rome, which in those days was the ends of the earth, as far as Jerusalemites were concerned, um, and continued to go out further and further. And it was just as Micah imagined, as the good news of the gospel spread far and wide, people of every tribe and tongue were invited to learn God's ways and to walk in his paths. And the New Testament is filled with stories of little colonies beginning all over the ancient world, little colonies of God's kingdom in the midst of the Roman Empire. This was just the beginning. And now there are Christians on every continent. There are Christian churches, faithful churches all over the world. All people everywhere can follow Jesus and choose Bibles over bonds. Maybe you have an opinion about how government could be a lot better. <clears throat> if only Washington spent less money on this or more money on that, things would be better. Here's a better idea, perhaps. What if Washington heard and welcomed God's word? What if all men and women in the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial, is that all we have right now? The three, those three. What if all men and women who work in those areas, what if they were to say, our ways clearly aren't working? So instead of fighting with each other and fighting with everyone else around the world, how about we obey the Lord? Let's ask him to teach us his ways and show us his path so that we might walk in them. What do you think would happen? Listen to the way Micah describes it. Verses 3 and 4. He, the Lord, shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every person under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. 
For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Won't that be amazing? Think about how wonderful that will be. Think about all the money we'll save on defense spending. Think about how much happier Justice Roberts will be with an undivided court. Jerome Powell will finally be able to take a vacation and smile. Everybody will be sitting under their vines and their fig trees. If you weren't in government, I want you to know I respect and appreciate what you do. I really do. And no, I don't think some, some silly gimmick for sneaking the Bible into your committee meeting is going to be a good idea. What I do believe, though, is that the nations, including ours, are weary of fighting. The Lord's ways and His word can settle disputes, bring peace and prosperity instead of conflict. The question is, where are the prophets? Where are those who have the courage to speak the truth in love? Where are the people who love their neighbors enough to tell them the bad news so that they can then welcome the good news? Take a look at the last verse of our section today, chapter 4, verse 5, where Micah speaks to believers. If you're a believer, he's speaking to you. He says, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Here's the final point of today's passage. Message to believers. Right now, most people we know don't believe that the Bible is better than bombs. Most people we know don't believe that love means telling the truth even when it's not very nice. <clears throat> but believers know. Micah knew, because we, as we heard back in chapter 3, verse 8, he was filled with the Spirit, with power, with justice and might, and he was able to speak the truth in love. What happened to him back then, almost 3,000 years ago, is possible for every believer today because the Spirit has been given to all Christians. That's the difference. If you're a Christian, then the Holy Spirit is at work in you personally, intimately. The Spirit of God knows you by name and calls you, binding your wounds, guiding your decisions, protecting you, comforting you, but the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit is not individualistic. Think about it. The Spirit knows you and loves you, but His ministry in you is not individualistic. The Holy Spirit also works through you socially, may I say even politically, the Spirit is working through you for the life of the world. This is the prophetic ministry of the Spirit, and this can happen to anyone. It should happen to every believer. Now we are all prophets like Micah because the Holy Spirit gives us boldness to proclaim God's way, God's word, and his judgment when necessary. In other words, to speak the truth in love. 
Many of us voted in the midterms on Tuesday. If you did, good for you. You did what you were supposed to do. Now, however, comes our much more important political responsibility as Christians. We're prophets. We're called to speak the truth in love. To deliver both the bad news and the good news to a world that is weary of fighting. It's scary, I know. I know, it's scary. Where can we find the strength to speak for the Lord in a society like this? Well, it's actually right here. It's right here at the table. It's here from the pulpit. In contrast to Micah's depiction of the kings in his day, those who abused, who abused of power made them look hungry, like uh, in, in contrast to those kings back then, those kings who were like demons eating the flesh of their people. We have a king who gives of himself, body and blood, to feed us. He is the living word, proclaimed to us. He makes his word available to us to feast upon he says, eat my words and feast on my body and blood, and that will be enough for you to do this prophetic work in the world. For you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, to take, eat, and then go forth into the world, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Feast on the word, and then speak the truth in love. Michael's message to us. Let's pray. You are afraid, Lord, to speak the truth in love. Lord, thank you for the gift of your spirit. We ask for courage and wisdom to do this mighty work. We ask for success that as we go out from this place, we would bear fruit for your kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.